You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. From the triune God. Amen. About 15 years ago, I had just a touch of what I think would have to be called hypochondria. It wasn't long-lived, thank goodness, but for about nine months when I was around 32 and a college student slash stay-at-home mom of a baby and a toddler, I kept getting sick all the time. And I was just sure something was wrong with me. I was in my doctor's office just about every month asking that he run tests since I had recently been sick so often. My life was overwhelming me at the time, and so in this weird way, I was secretly hoping something was wrong with me because if something was really wrong with me, if I was like really, really sick, then I'd get a hall pass on life. No one would expect anything from me. Maybe someone would even offer to bring in food or do our laundry because I was tired and overwhelmed. And being a stay-at-home mom and also taking college classes and living on public assistance was hard. So after about my fifth or sixth visit to my primary care physician, he finally just closed my chart, took off his reading glasses, looked at me and said, Nadia, nothing is wrong with you. You just have to deal with your life. And I was like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. You should totally check your tests again. (laughs) It was not the cure I was hoping for, but it was the truth. I kept thinking about that humiliating but also liberating moment in the doctor's office while I was studying the story of Naaman this week. I'm a total sucker for the story of Naaman the leper. It really doesn't get near enough airtime, if you ask me. Maybe we should take Noah's Ark out of rotation for a while and let Naaman the leper take up some ink on children's wallpaper. The basic story is this, that Naaman was a big deal Syrian military leader. I don't know, like General Petraeus or something like that. He was an impressive dude with an important job, but the thing is he he had leprosy. His people had conquered the Israelite people, and as was the custom in those days, the conquerors could enslave the conquered. So Naaman had an Israelite slave girl who was really little more than war spoils. And yet, in an act of graciousness, I'm pretty sure I could never muster up in the situation, this girl tells him that there is a top-notch prophet in Israel who could definitely help him out with that their leprosy problem. The thing is, Elisha, the prophet of Israel, was not in Naaman's preferred provider network, so it got a little tricky. <laughs> Anyhow, so Naaman pulls up to Elisha's, the prophet's house in his Bentley, 
expecting the prophet to come out and greet him and do some sort of big fancy magic show and heal him, wave his arms over his head, call on the name of the Lord, you know, something impressive suiting such a great man as Naaman. And instead, Elisha just stayed in his house and sends out some raggedy old servant to tell Naaman exactly how he will be healed. Naaman needs to do nothing but wash in the Jordan seven times. The Jordan, as though washing in some off-brand river will do anything. Naaman was like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. You should totally check your test results again. (laughs) That was not the cure he was hoping for. Until his servant, and if you note, if you're listening closely to the story, the only reasonable, helpful, smart people in the entire story are those without any status whatsoever. But his servant called him out, saying, hold on. If the prophet told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you do it? How much more if he only says, wash and be clean? Well, Naaman follows Elisha's directions to wash in the Jordan and is healed of his leprosy. He was physically healed, but I started to wonder this week if perhaps he was healed in another way too. Maybe his healing was also somehow connected to God disabusing him of his grand ideas. Perhaps he was healed of thinking he knew what would heal him. I wonder how often we are attached to an idea of what we think will make everything okay for us. What conditions need to be met in order for us to feel safe, cared for, rested, whole. When I make 10000 a year more, I will be okay. When I find a partner, I will be okay. When I lose 20 pounds, I will be okay. When I get one more graduate degree, I will be okay. When my parents or my children treat me the way I think they should, I will be okay. When everyone in my life acts the way I think they should, I will be okay. Naaman the leper, despite his ideas about what he needed or deserved, his healing was somehow connected to something really simple, to just showing up and encountering God, not in the extraordinary or the exceptional, but in the ordinary waters of an off-brand river. He had to let go of what he was waiting for in his life in order to receive what was already there in his life. We see a similar struggle in today's gospel text when Jesus sends the 70 out on their mission. It's kind of amazing Jesus even got that many people after giving what amounts to the worst recruitment speech in history. Basically, Jesus sells the mission by saying, okay, the first thing you need to know is that we're understaffed. Second, there's a high wolf danger, so watch out for that. Third, you can't take any money or change of clothes or bag or even sandals. Fourth, stay with whoever will share the peace with you and don't try and trade up. And if there's sick people around, take care of them. And fifth, the food might stink, but eat it anyway. I imagine the 70 he appointed, and yes, they were appointed, because honestly, being a follower of Jesus has always been a lot more like conscription than volunteerism. But my guess is that they swallowed hard and said, okay, Jesus, We can deal with those working conditions. Now, what's the mission? And Jesus just looks at them like Jesus does and says, yeah, that is the mission. And they were like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. You should recheck your work assignments, Jesus. (laughs) That was not the work assignment we were hoping for. Maybe they already had ideas about what it would look like to be agents in God's kingdom, waving their hands about, calling on the name of the Lord, yet... Jesus said all that is needed is to walk the road with one other person 
allow yourself to give and receive hospitality, break bread, and bless stuff. I understand if they were a little freaked out. I mean, who am I without my credentials and credit cards? And who wouldn't want to negotiate for better accommodations? We all want to trade up in some way. Get the better apartment, the cooler church, the younger-looking wife, the newest iPhone, the next level of veganism. <laughs> but there's almost a countercultural trading down that happens in discipleship. The kingdom of God comes near in the mundane, in the not special, in the very much not cool. And it's always been like that. Which incidentally is why the Gnostic Gospels weren't included in our New Testament, just for a short history lesson. The Gospel of Thomas and others like it were rejected not because they were too cool or because the powers that be didn't want us to know the real truth. The Gnostic Gospels were rejected because of spiritual elitism. The idea that some people, only some people, were special and chosen to undergo impressive esoteric spiritual teaching and become enlightened, that's foundationally not Christian. Because Christianity is about story and water and bread and wine, things that are offensively common, showing up in life, sharing stories, being the stranger, welcoming the stranger, breaking bread, swimming in rivers, as many of you know, my former bishop says the greatest spiritual discipline is just showing up, showing up for our lives, which I was trying to avoid doing 14 years ago, and showing up for our community and our family and friends. Of course, just showing up isn't as sexy as yoga or praying the daily office or doing a master cleanse or a 10-day silent retreat, but showing up means being vulnerable in that empty-handed, sent-out-by-Jesus-without-sandals sort of way. It's the vulnerability of having nothing to offer but what we've been given by Christ. The vulnerability of receiving hospitality. The vulnerability of having difficult truths spoken to you. I had thought that when a doctor gave me an extraordinary diagnosis that came with the hall pass, that then I would be okay. But what I needed was just to show up in my life and realize, even though it was overwhelming, I was already okay. <laughs> or as I like to say to you guys sometimes in pastoral care, you're actually doing much better than you feel. We as followers of Christ don't have some kind of special superpower. <laughs> We're actually not the spiritually elite. We just have the authority to show up. To show up and proclaim the nearness of God that scatters the darkness. To show up and sing hymns and to break bread. And we can show up for life and for each other and for the world because what we need for healing and sustenance happens to always be the same as the simple, ordinary things that are always right in front of us. That's the way God works. Amen.